You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. I'm your host, Marty Duran. In season one, I told you about my wife's cookie business, Sweet Life Cookies, and I have decided to keep her as a sponsor for season two. You need to buy some cookies from Sweet Life Cookies. Uh, original chocolate chip, double chocolate mint, white chocolate macadamia nut. Uh, she's even added an M&M variety, which is very popular with kids, as you know. Um, half dozens or dozens can be shipped anywhere in the, in the United States. Uh, if you're in the Middle Tennessee area, specifically if you're in the Nashville area, you can get the cookie trays, three dozen size, six dozen size. Uh, that will meet all your office and party needs. Go to MySweetLifeCookies.com to place an order, or if you're interested in a tray, there's contact information there where you can give her the information about your get-together. Delivery is available in a limited range as well. So go to MySweetLifeCookies.com, check everything out. They are the best cookies in the world, and I ain't lying. Andy Gullahorn is an independent recording artist living in Nashville, Tennessee. He was born and raised in the rich musical climate of Austin, Texas, and then went to college at Belmont University in Nashville to become a songwriter in the country music scene. After graduation, he spent a number of years as a staff writer for publishing companies while playing the guitar on the road for singer-songwriter Jill Phillips, who happened to be his wife. In 2004, he and Jill came off the road to meet the needs of their growing family, Andy's a mainstay in Andrew Peterson's annual Behold the Lamb of God tour, which, by the way, is where I first heard of him, and can be found doing his own shows at venues across America. A partial discography includes Room to Breathe, Reinventing the Wheel, The Law of Gravity, Christmas, Beyond the Frame, and Everything as It Should Be. If you've ever heard Andy Gullihorn play, you know humor is a big part of both his banter and his songs. If you've ever thought, I'd like to hear Andy talk for a while without his guitar, well, Here's your chance. Andy Gullahorn, welcome to Uncommentary. Thanks for having me. So we're in, is this South Nashville? Um, I mean, it's south of downtown, but I, I think it's just regular old Nashville. Regular old Nashville. Uh, in your amazing studio with posters everywhere. So this is cool. Um, you're a musician. I think so. Recording artist. Some folks listening will know who you are, but a lot of folks won't. So uh, give us the, the quick bio on Andy Gullahorn. Quick bio for me. I moved here to Nashville from uh, Austin, Texas to go to Belmont University. And I met my wife the first day of class. She wasn't my wife then when I met her, but I met her. Shortly thereafter, was she? I mean, right after we graduated, so like four oh, okay. years later. Okay. And um, I mean, I came to Nashville because I love songwriting mm-hmm. and my favorite songwriters were all here, and I just wanted to be a writer. And um, my wife, not long after we got married, I mean, months after, she signed a record deal with a Christian record label. Cool. And so I started writing uh, for that label and playing guitar for her. And we hit the road and pretty much just played guitar for her for the first five or six years of our marriage and wrote for publishing companies. Mm-hmm. And then uh, about that time is when we had our second child. And she wanted to be home a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do because I have no marketable skills. <laughs> uh, so I started making my own records again. I think I did one record in college. and uh, So I started making records, but the way I thought about making records was they were just demos. I, I consider myself just a songwriter, mm-hmm. and I wanted to make records so that somebody else could hear the songs and maybe somebody with more ambition and talent could sing them and, and make me the money so I didn't have to. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh hasn't really happened. But um, <laughs> but then I discovered that I love doing my own music and traveling and playing songs for people. So uh, so I've been doing that. You know, Jill and I will do some shows together, but most of the time I'm traveling doing shows mm-hmm. by myself. There were 10 years in there where I was also traveling with a friend, Andrew Peterson, uh, when I wasn't doing shows with my who? wife, Andrew, who Andrew Peterson, yeah, I, the name's familiar. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that was about ten years of playing guitar, like just kind of playing guitar for him and his shows. And mm-hmm. I would do a couple songs in those shows, and we just found out that I, I, I still don't think of myself as an artist, but mm-hmm. I've, I've done a number of records and I and spend most of my time traveling around playing songs. When did you? Um, when did you? Were you like in a middle school Beatles cover band or anything? When did you start playing? Definitely not. I was. Um, 
I played piano when I was real little. Okay. From, I mean, lessons from when I was three to when I was 12. Wow. I quit piano because I was sure I was going to the NBA. <laughs> and uh, it was just slowing me down for my basketball. <laughs> and uh, and then in high school, um, I kind of picked up a guitar. And the, the love for playing guitar and writing songs quickly eclipsed my love for basketball. Mm. Uh, I'll say that's why I didn't go to the NBA, but really I didn't have... Uh, you know, a fraction of the talent to be able to do that. And, um, so yeah, but when I did music in high school, Mm -hmm. it was a very, uh, private thing for me. Mm. I mean, I, Austin's a great music town, but I was not involved in the music scene there at all. And there's nobody that I knew in my high school that was writing. It was a pretty small high school, but nobody else that I was kind of like even writing with or playing music with. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was mostly country stuff. Yeah. Uh, so coming to Nashville was the first real music community that I had, uh, and I loved it. I mean, it's a great place for songwriters. It's <clears throat> I tell people all the time that they people outside of Nashville really can't comprehend the talent pool here. That the your Uber driver or your barista, you know, is better than the worship leader at your church, and they don't really know it until they get here. And it's like every concert is the best concert you've ever been to. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. And still to this day, somebody will say, oh, have you ever heard of this person who plays some random instrument? It's like, no. And then I see them play, and I'm like, that's maybe the most talented person <laughs> I've ever seen in my entire life. And, it, and they're just a lot of the most talented people yeah. I've ever seen in my entire life uh, in this town. And they're also very unassuming. And it's kind of like, it's not a big ego town. Yeah, that's true. Um, so it's, I just love it. My, my experience of Nashville has been... Um, I know other people have different experiences, mm-hmm. but where it's not a super competitive town, it's a, it's a very collaborative town, mm-hmm. and and uh, it it doesn't operate out of a scarcity model. It, it, it's not like there's so many slots. You know, if you're talented, I have to step on you to get somewhere right, else. It's right. kind of like, hey, we can all flourish together. Yeah. Um, I know other people have different experiences, but that's been my experience here. So I think I came to know you uh, at the 2012 Behold the Lamb of God. Were you there that year? It could have been 2011. I'm guessing um, there's only one year where I didn't do it, and it was, I don't know what year that would have been. I think it was 2012 was the first year. Was it at the Ryman? Yes. Oh, yeah, I've been all the ones at the Ryman. Okay. And a friend gave me tickets. My son and I got to go, uh, best seats I've had so far. Uh, and and you did your song Green Hills Mall okay in the like the round time, and um, of course I laughed myself silly over the thing, and I'd never even been to the mall yet, but it made sense. <clears throat> and I um I started listening to your songs on YouTube from various coffee shops and whatnot, and then in concert you tell a lot of stories to explain your songs or at least set them up or something like that. And they're almost all funny. Almost all the almost all the the stories to set up your songs, even if the song is not funny, the the story to set it up is. Um, and I, I'll start. I'll stop a little short of saying it's like a stand-up routine, but it's really, really well done. Um, have you always been like this deadpan? Like in school, did you say stuff to the teachers that they didn't realize till fifteen minutes later that you were mocking them? Uh, has that always been your style of humor? I guess so. I don't really remember. Like, uh, I never thought of myself as like the the funny kid, mm-hmm. but I've always loved humor. I've always loved comedians, mm-hmm. um, and uh, always re- uh, gravitated towards like self deprecating humor mm-hmm. and and timing. I, I I just love good timing. Uh, I'm not saying that I have it, but um, oh, I'll say it. Well, you do. Well, I hope that's true. Um, but yeah, I just actually, um, and it's, I guess, you know, maybe I've been gravitated towards, you know, humor my whole life. I will say that uh, some of the people that I listened to when I first started writing songs, some of my favorites mm-hmm. uh, incorporated humor into what they did. Guys like David Wilcox or John Gorka, 
I, I remember seeing John Gorka play at a festival we were playing together um, maybe five years ago mm-hmm. or I don't know, could have been 10 years ago. And I hadn't seen John Gorka play in maybe 10 years before that. So I kind of forgotten what his show was like. And I watched him and, and realized, oh my gosh, I, I stole a lot of, <laughs> you know, stole might be a, a harsh word, <laughs> but I'll take it. Uh, I learned from just his presence. It was, mm-hmm. it was so welcoming and he's very self-deprecating in a way that I think makes space for other people. Mm-hmm. And I, I always love that. So I think I absorb things from him or other people like him without fully paying attention to it. Well, we saw you in, I guess it was December, maybe. Maybe it was January. I can't remember your uh, album release party at West End Methodist Church. Oh, yeah. That would have been um, November, Okay, I think. Um, and you told the story that led up to the song about teenagers. Mm-hmm. I want you to tell that story. Oh, gosh. That's a long story. It is a long story, but it's great. Man. Uh, well, it's basically a story about what a horrible parent I am. That's why I want you to tell it <laughs> so I can sympathize. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was maybe three years ago and it starts with us agreeing to do this festival at the end of a summer that, that was already pretty jam packed with things. Mm-hmm. And we take our kids with us for all the stuff we do in the summer. And the second to last thing we had that summer is a camp in upstate New York where we teach songwriting to kids and we've done it for maybe 10 years mm-hmm. and it's a long drive we drive up there maybe 16 hour drive and we were driving back from that event and I knew that we had like a 24 hour turnaround period before we had to get back in the car and drive up to, close to Chicago for another event and I was preparing my family for it my kids yeah three said, three kids okay saying things like when we get home I know we only have 24 hours but this, but this next thing is going to be a lot of fun there's going to be stuff for you to do and trying to talk it up and they were whining about it they just wanted to be home the last weekend before school started and to see their friends mm-hmm. sleep in their own bed and they were just whining and um, in order to stop their whining I, I know that I knew that my job as a dad is I also did not want to have a 24 hour turnaround time and go up to Chicago uh, but I knew that my job as a, as a good father was to suppress my feelings and pretend like I don't, <laughs> I don't feel them. And so I was trying to convince them that it's going to be awesome and, mm-hmm. and it didn't stop their whining. So finally I just said, when we get home, don't worry about doing anything. Just relax. I'll take care of everything. I'll mow the yard. I'll change the oil in the car. I will uh, do the laundry. I'll repack the bags. I'll... Usually when you come home from a trip, I say, kids, help me unload the car before you do yeah. anything else. And this time I was like, don't worry about it. Just go inside, watch TV, and I will, I'll unload the car by myself. I'll take it on by myself because I'm a really amazing father. And so I, I did all that stuff in that 24-hour period. And then we got in the car to drive up to Chicago and got in like 1130. I drove the, the whole way uh, by myself. Not that I was keeping track, but we get there and they, um, they all go to sleep. We're sleeping in the same room. They fall asleep before I do. Mm-hmm. Not that I was keeping track, but, uh, you know, I was kind of up before everybody else doing work while they were sleeping in. Um, doesn't matter. I was happy to do it. And I had this feeling when they fell asleep before I did, I was like, man, they're, I'm doing a really great job as a dad because they're pretty comfortable mm-hmm. and they're getting good rest. I'm so happy for them. <laughs> I woke up in the morning they were all still sleeping. And I decided as a gift to them, I would go down and get breakfast for everybody before the hotel breakfast shut down so they didn't have to get up. So I did. I got five plates full of breakfast, you know, waffles and whatever they had there. And Pseudo food. Pseudo food. Yeah. Uh, usually I, I try to avoid. And <laughs> I, I was balancing cups on top of it, all that kind of stuff. And I walked up to the room and I could hear they were awake, but they were kind of roughhousing laughing joking around in there and I had this moment I was like man my kids are so happy I've done a really great job as a dad providing for them and so I kind of lightly kicked on the door because my hands were full and I heard the, the noise go down a little bit um, 
And then I could hear them whispering, I'm not going to get it. <laughs> and then another one said, well, I'm not going to get it. And they just went back to jumping on the bed or whatever they were doing. <laughs> and it was that point, like all of my goodwill, amazing father uh, <laughs> shtick uh, started to, to dissipate. And uh, I kicked on the door a couple more times. They still didn't come get the door. I'm like, why would they not want to answer the door for their amazing father? And I could hear my wife, who was in the shower, say, Hey, kids, I think somebody's knocking at the door. And I well, guess the Jehovah's Witnesses stopped. Yeah, by. yeah. <laughs> and I heard my, my teenager say, my oldest teenager say, um, Yeah, but if it's dad, he's got his own key. And I remember thinking, Yeah, I do have my own key. It's in my back pocket. I can't reach it because I'm holding your stupid breakfast. And, you know, all the, my anger started to, to come up. So I kicked the door maybe a little bit harder. And he opened the door and. and he saw when when he saw it was me he could tell i was not well pleased <laughs> and i often say that at that moment i i used a parenting technique that i've i've heard a lot about since it's called shame-based parenting yes. and that's just letting them know all the ways i'm disappointed in them and and you know a normal kid would open the door for another human being but for some reason you know my kids don't do it and just kind of just went off. All, all the resentment that I've been building up from driving back from New York, from mm-hmm. unloading the car, from mowing the yard. I thought I was doing that with a clean slate. And uh, nope, I was entering it into a ledger. And um, I kind of angrily set the food down on the on the dresser and walked it. Well, I say walked out of the room. Stormed out of the room. <laughs> I said, you know. Enjoy your breakfast, probably not in the nicest way. And then I went outside, down through the lobby, went outside and kind of clear my head, called a couple of friends, left voicemails. And and once I got my bearings, I was like, oh, man, I, that was not cool. And one thing that's important to me with raising my kids, I'm, I'm screwing them up in a million ways. Mm. Um, but one thing that I'm aware of, I don't want them to say, at any point in their life that they had a dad who never apologized to them mm. or who was who always had to be right. So uh, I said, oh, I've got to go up and apologize. So I went up and I sat across from my, my oldest and I just said, I am so sorry. Uh, I shouldn't have done that. that. That was not okay what I did, how I responded. And my two other kids were like, no, dad, don't worry about it. You know, we should, we should be the ones apologizing. <laughs> and... You know, my teenager was kind of, he got the brunt of the shame-based uh-huh. parenting and he knew it wasn't really fair. And I think he was still a little bit riled up. So his response was, yeah, dad, that was way over the top. <laughs> and that kind of set me off again. I had to calm down, you know, I was like, yeah, it was over the top. And that's why I'm apologizing. <laughs> that's what people do when they do something wrong. Take, take some notes. And, um, but yeah, I, I calmed down again and just said, you know, I think these past couple of days have been way more stressful than I let on. I don't really pay attention to stress in my body. I try mm. to pretend like it doesn't exist. And uh, clearly, it's been doing something to me. And so the anger just kind of poured out, it erupted like a volcano. Mm-hmm. And then I said, haven't you ever responded to something in a way that's bigger than what the situation calls for? And he said... Um, Yes, but I'm not 41. (laughs) Which is really a great response. Unless you're the dad hearing that uh, from your teenage son. And so that, you know, the story is that that I kind of just quietly get up and go stand in the the built-in closet in the corner of the Hampton Inn room and do some breathing exercises. (laughs) And then the way I get back is I write a song about them. So I wrote a song about teenagers (laughs) to get back at them and... And, uh, <coughs> you know, it made me feel better. Yeah, they have to suffer every time you sing it. <laughs> yeah. They, actually, he doesn't suffer when I sing it. It's kind of like, you know, most teenagers, there are a number of times I play that song in, in the presence of teenagers and their parents. You know, I'll see yeah. them elbowing each other. <laughs> and I'm always worried after a show that teenage, somebody's going to come up and punch me in the face. <laughs> I but I ask the teenagers and they're like, yeah, what's the big deal? Yeah. I think the, the night we heard you sing that, uh, I think he gave you some feedback as you were telling the story, if I remember right. He did. He, uh, he and my daughter both both uh, <laughs> chimed in. <laughs> I mean, they're just keeping you honest. Yeah. 
They're they're what I love about my kids is, is they are. You know, I talked to my teenagers about. I told them I'd tell that story from stage, mm-hmm. made sure that was okay to talk about. Um, they're really funny kids. They they got, you know, they have a really funny mom, and they have, all three of them. I think have good quick humor, mm-hmm. so it's dangerous for them to be at shows because oh, yeah. they will. Uh, they can play it up just as much. Yeah, I try to remind them I'm the one with a microphone, That's so right. back off. Yeah, somehow it doesn't matter. Yeah. So here are three ways that you can support Uncommentary. If you'd like to give a one-time gift of support, go to paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. And you can do that there one time for as little as a buck. So uh, take the opportunity to do that. If you'd like to become a patron and be on a monthly donation, you can go to patreon.com slash uncommentary. And for as little as $2 a month, you can be a regular patron for Uncommentary. There's some gift levels there with some stickers and mugs and feel free to choose the one that best suits your budget the third way is by using my amazon shop so that's amazon.com slash shop slash marty duran amazon.com slash shop slash marty duran most of the books from the authors that i have interviewed are there as well as some that i just recommend for your reading pleasure Uh, you get the same low amazon price and it generates a commission to me which helps support uncommentary so i hope you'll take advantage of one of these three because i couldn't do it without you now back to this episode of uncommentary um so you you wrote uh working man you tell a story goes along with that which is hilarious i actually tweeted that video out this morning and some guy was like, man, it's awesome. And he'd mentioned another song that, that he thought. But the one that, your song that is both, I mean, it has the hook of all hooks for me. So I go from smiling to tears every single time I listen to it, is More Than a Man. Hmm. Um, is, that the, is that the right More name? of a Man. More of a Man. More Than a Man, it would be a different song. That's right. <laughs> I have to work out more. <laughs> uh, that song is so poignant to me uh, because of how men do tend to value our, our or think about manhood mm. um, and it is all about what we can accomplish so like now that you're kind of on the other side of that phase do you like you know smear guinea pig blood on your face before you go to a concert or is that not something you do anymore that's funny no I, I don't um, I haven't played that song in a long time really Partially because there are... Well, you have to keep changing your age in it, too. Yeah, that's true. I can't remember what the... It's like, I think 30? it started as 30-something, and the year I heard it, it was 35. Okay, yeah. I think I wrote it when I was 30. Maybe. Okay. I, I remember the first lyric being 30 for some reason. I, I can't even remember the lyric in my head now. Um, one of the reasons why I don't play it very often is because there have been other songs... Similarly themed, mm-hmm. covered the same. So time. I wouldn't do them both in the same right. night. Um, but I always like that song, and it's basically. I'm trying to remember what it came out of. Um, but ultimately, you know, growing up in Texas, mm-hmm. I grew up hunting, and um, we lived on a farm and had some cows. I, I, to say that I was a super manly, like the Marlboro Man, would be a, a great exaggeration. Mm-hmm. Um, but compared to what I do now, right? You know, um, where I sing songs about my feelings, you know, <laughs> going to Whole Foods. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, oh, you know, no, I, no, Dad, I can't go hunting. I've got, I can't miss my yoga, you know. <laughs> and um, so this whole idea of also like after having kids, mm-hmm. um. I can't stand to watch like a boxing match or like yeah. the MMA fight or something like that. I can't, there's certain things that I just can't stomach anymore. Yeah. Um, so then I think about my old life and it just feels so distant. Mm-hmm. Uh, all those really manly Texas things that I imagine myself doing. A, a weird example, and I don't remember if this is, this happened close to the time of writing that song or not, but, um, I almost passed out with the first two kids when when my wife got her epidural. Now, if, if you if if my if my wife was telling the story, she would say he passed out for all three kids. That is not true at all. She is a, a huge liar. And uh, what happened? What happened was is that 
when she was getting her epidural the first time. It was really early in the morning, and they pull out this, you know, 20-foot yeah, needle. I know. And they say, okay, you're not going to feel anything. I mean, you might feel a little prick in your back, but we're just going to stick this in your spine. I don't, I don't know why they would describe it that way. <laughs> um, and I'm kind of in front of her holding her hand and like, you know, just, just comfort mm-hmm. her while she's doing this. And she's totally fine. And I just see this huge needle that she doesn't see, and I imagine it going into her back. And I can feel myself kind yeah. of, whew, I'm, I'm getting a little woozy. And then I kind of <laughs> kneel down. And then while she has this huge needle in her back, all the nurses turn to me and they say, sir, you're really white. You, you know, yeah. They all leave her yeah. and they take me and lay me down on the couch and get me a Sprite or something like that. And, while she's in labor. Yeah. I mean, that was just I've the, been there, dude. the epidural thing. And I was like, it, to the second time, I was like, I'm going to make sure I eat breakfast. I'm going to make sure I'm you know, prepared blood sugar wise. Same thing happened. So third kid, I was like, hey, listen, I'm, which for the record, I didn't actually pass out. I just got a little woozy and I went and laid down and had a Sprite. No big deal. And, Never lost uh, consciousness. Yeah. Third kid, I was just like, uh, they were also fairly easy deliveries and she was, she was a champ. So third kid, I was like, hey, why don't you just do the epidural by yourself? That, I don't have a good track record with that. But I'll just be here for the birth. And the birth is, you know... <clears throat> It's it's not like it grosses me out or anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, I've castrated hundreds of cows and seen, you know, uh, all sorts of stuff. And mm-hmm. been, I mean, like, it's not the visual part mm-hmm. of it. It's like imagining some kind of pain happening in my head for my wife. <laughs> and so the third kid, you know, while she's pushing, they say something. I don't remember what they said, but it, I was like, oh, no, I, I feel the sweat. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel whatever that was. And she looks at me while she's giving birth. And she's like, you probably need to go lay down. So I was laying down on the couch and I kind of look up and they're like, it's a boy. I was like, awesome. And I laid back down and drank some of my Sprite. Um, all that to say, those kinds of things, mm-hmm. you know, it, it doesn't feel super manly. Yeah. Um, so those are all the, it creates even more space between, you know, the Texas cowboy kind of guy and then this sissy singer songwriter uh from nashville and so that song is just grieving well kind of grieving yeah all those things i used to do that was really manly and uh and also kind of the serious turn of it is just like well if if all that stuff is being manly like i'm okay Mm -hmm. not being manly in that way because i love my life Mm uh and i'm not saying it's one is more right than the other but but it's easy for me to. But you bring in the idea of loneliness too. That <clears throat> that being having all those aspects of manhood don't mean you're not lonely. Yeah, especially when I picture the cowboy, like the 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 Marlboro Man out the, there. The by Marlboro himself. Man yeah. is like, oh, it seems awesome, and then he's like sleeping on rocks by himself out in the cold. I was like, that sucks. I don't. I don't want. I haven't lost anything out there. I'm not. I'm not interested in that. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I, I remember that, that the last verse, it talks about seeing the young men pass me by. Yeah. I remember being, I was in Las Vegas, eating at a buffet, watching all these young guys that look really cool. And I was like, yeah, I'm past my prime. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, don't, I wouldn't want to trade places with yeah. them for the world. Yeah. What is the, uh, what's the best concert that you've ever been to, whether you played in it or not? Ooh, best concert. Um... I mean, even if it's one you were in and it was just like, this is just the best thing I've ever seen in my life. Well, I'd like to like separate those two things. Okay. Not that it would be easy for me to figure out what the best concert I've ever mm. been to. Um, although, quickly I'll say, I think maybe some of the best concerts I've ever been to, like where I was just most amazed. Uh I've seen a guy named Martin Sexton. I've seen him a number of times, mm-hmm. and he's just he's just so talented, particularly live. The guitarist? Uh, plays guitar, kind of folk singer, but he can do anything. Mm. It's one of those things, I think, if you listen to his records, you might not catch all the magic that's mm-hmm. there. But um, I saw him live a number of times when I was in college and just was absolutely blown away. Mm. Um but you know, we were talking earlier about the Rich Mullins tribute concert. As far as one that I've been a part of, that was 
probably the most fun and most rewarding. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was basically a group of people taking one Rich Mullins record and picking it apart and trying to recreate it exactly as it was. So, Mm -hmm. so the preparation was fun. It's like, you know, there are a couple other acoustic players and, we talk and like you take the acoustic that's panned to the left and you take the one that's panned to the right. You take the one that's down the, the middle. And, and so it's going back and I hadn't done that in years where mm. I'm going back to it. It's like I was in high school again, listening to records and trying to figure it yeah. out, but it's trying to copy exactly what some guy, you know, however many, 25 years, 20 years ago, something like that. Um, and the funny thing is, you know, the way those records work, those musicians get in there. They're probably not thinking about a specific part. They're they're all playing stuff down. They're like, oh, well, I guess I'll play this here. I'll strum it this way. And probably never thought about it again. And here we are 25 years later yeah. taking notes like, okay, they do a triple <laughs> strum for this bar and then double strum for this, you know, like, and just really picking it apart and having a number of people do that mm-hmm. on their own and then kind of coming together and pulling off this show at the Ryman. Um, it was so much fun. It was phenomenal. It was, it was and and the, the aspect of people who love the record mm-hmm. being there and joining in and singing along and it just I think it was the best kind of show where you put in a lot of work for mm-hmm. it and it's not about you and you're just participating in something bigger than yourself mm-hmm. um, and you're playing playing a small role there pretty much everybody else in the band had a much harder job than I did. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody <coughs> maybe it was maybe Andrew Peterson said that the record was much more complex than people realized did you feel that oh yeah and I think everybody particularly piano parts mm-hmm. when you think of or any of that mm-hmm. recreating it live that record had never been recreated live before it wasn't made to be played live oh, that's true so when you have multiple tracks, multiple piano tracks, um, you know, they're not tracking it with two guys sitting at a piano playing with four hands, but yeah. that's what we had to do live. Yeah. Um, you, you don't think of all of that stuff being pulled off live. Mm-hmm. And it was just a great challenge to try to pull it off. It was, I would say, the hardest challenge for, for, Ben Shive, who kind of headed the whole thing, was yeah. playing piano. He, I mean, the work that he did was unreal. Was it, I guess he and, was it Reed Arvin may have been playing together on one song? I mm-hmm. can't remember. He was the original producer, right? Yes. Yeah. That was really cool to have him come back. Yeah. I mean, that's really, really something. Um, the music business. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember, I don't know, how long, five years ago maybe, Happy was the song that you heard everywhere, every elevator and operating room and oh, everything the, else. Pharrell Williams. Pharrell song. Um, and then I heard him say sometime after that, he was talking about, I guess, streaming and talking about how little streaming pays the artist or the, the writer or whoever. Now I think it was Peter Frampton recently, maybe last year wrote something to the same effect. He had one song been played like a million times on Spotify or whatever. He got a check for a thousand dollars or something like that, um, which I'll take it if he don't want it. But still, I think the point is, um, how hard is it being an artist in the age of streaming when so few people are buying the whole thing and they just listen to it a song at a time or listen to it over and over and the artist is getting not even a pennies on the dollar it seems like it's it's definitely hard it's definitely changed um there are a lot of different answers to that question uh but it really has the streaming has changed everything mm-hmm. from just it's made it to where making records now is has to be considered more of a marketing expense mm. uh, than a money making expense. Um, but things are changing so much that it's impossible for me to keep up with knowing how much things pay, and I'm so out of it. Uh, I might not be the best person to talk to about <laughs> it. I will say that <clears throat> to I think to make a living. Doing what I do, it just means I have to be on the road more. Mm. So it means that honorarium, uh, like show payment, goes up to try to compensate for what maybe I would have made before it, with merchandise mm-hmm. added to it. Um, so in that sense, it's not like business has slowed down. 
show wise, it's I just don't count on sales from music to mm-hmm. be as much of a piece of a pie as it used to be. Mm. And what I do know about streaming, you're right. It, it when people were buying music off of Amazon or iTunes, you're paying a dollar for a song or ten dollars for a record mm-hmm. to download. That was a pretty fair model. It still wasn't as great as selling CDs on the road. Yeah. But you're making $7 on a $10 purchase. With streaming, you're right. It's just fractions of a penny. And even that whole game of getting on Spotify playlists, and I don't have the time or energy to even think about how to expand that. Yeah. The younger artists know how to do that, and and maybe they are probably benefiting from it Mm -hmm. in some way. Um, And I do know some of the stuff that's going on right now with, uh, for songwriters in particular, trying to get, I think they've had the raw end of the deal as far as percentages from Mm -hmm. streaming services. And, you know, they passed legislation to to where songwriters will make a, a greater percent over the next five or 10 years or something like that. And there's a big stink right now because Apple Music is like accepting that. Spotify acts like they love songwriters, mm-hmm. but they're fighting that so they don't have to pay songwriters as much. Yeah. And it makes sense for them. The, the difference is that Apple and Amazon can take more of a loss there because they have a loss leader for the other kinds of business. business. Right. Spotify has nothing else. It's not mm-hmm. You don't sign up for Spotify... And also get whatever else. So <coughs> get some furniture shipped to your house. That's their that's their one thing. Yeah. So I'm sure that's why they're fighting it. But I do think songwriters kind of get forgotten in the whole thing. Even the mechanical. I don't know how long the mechanical rate has been. What the mechanical rate has mm-hmm. been, but it's not like songwriters' pay has has been going up for decades and mm-hmm. decades. Um, on the flip side, for if you look at big concerts, the, the amount of money that people are paying to go to concerts these days, when I when I look at when somebody comes in town, Fleetwood Mac comes into town, and I'm like, oh, I'm gonna get tickets. Oh, I don't want to pay four hundred dollars yeah. a ticket. Yeah, um, it's amazing to me and great that people are paying that much for live concert events. I mean, nobody's paying that to come see me. Yeah, yeah. But it's weird that somebody would easily one hundred seventy five dollar. Yeah, it's yeah. weird that people are so eager to drop <clears throat> that and think. Oh, ten dollars is too much for a record. Yeah, that's that's really weird to me. Yeah. So, what that communicates to me is people value the the live experience uh, way more than the album experience, or at least they've been told that the album isn't worth that much because mm-hmm. you can get it for free, essentially. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. That will have to change the way people do records. Mm-hmm. You put more into your live show and, and being on the road than you would putting into making a thoughtful, cohesive record. And maybe that just means people are releasing singles uh, instead of trying to do a full record. And I don't prefer that, but I really I don't have a strategy for how how to move forward. I just keep doing whatever it is I know how to do. Yeah. <clears throat> there there probably isn't an answer to this, and that's fine, but. Um, you mentioned when you were talking in, in your intro to Working Man, you talk about the song that you wrote as a joke. Uh, they danced alone, or something like that, mm-hmm. or, and that it took you like fifteen minutes to write it, other than the last line, the last part, which you had to wait for somebody else to come out and kill the old lady. Um, how long does it take you to write a song, typically, or is there a way to say? There's not a way. I mean, there are some songs that come really quickly. Mm-hmm. Some songs that are float around for a year and or longer and maybe just don't get finished. Mm-hmm. Uh, some that some that take that are more laborious and uh, yeah, and then there's some that I just I'm driving the car and then I I write a song in ten yeah. minutes and I'm done. And I really don't know the difference between the two. It's it's. I almost feel like the ones that come quickly are things that maybe I was ruminating on without being conscious of mm-hmm. it. And and then I kind of open the door for it. It's like, uh, it's already dressed and ready to go. Yeah. Other ones, I kind of open the door and it's like, oh, 
I've, I've got to, you know, get that thing dressed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really don't, I don't know how those songs are different. The ones I do really quickly are the ones that take a long time. They just, each one has a, its own story. When you go to record a new project, how many songs will you take into the studio to decide between? Usually, if a, if I put like 10 or 11 songs on a record, uh, about 150. I'm just kidding. Uh, maybe 10 or 11. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're... they're Every record is just kind of a snapshot of the songs I've been writing since the, the, I made the previous record. Mm-hmm. And there are songs that I just kind of gravitate towards as like that would be my own versus ones I'd write for other people or with other people mm-hmm. or other songs that are just kind of like songs that I like, but they don't, they don't feel like they're in my voice. Um, and when I get a batch of... 10 to 12, 10 to 15 songs that I feel like, okay, that's a, then that's when I decide to make a record. So it's not like I'm just writing a ton and then now it's time to make a record and I, I, I pare it down. Yeah. What, um, if you were stranded on a desert island for the rest of your life and you could only have one album, assuming you also had something to play it on. Right. Um, it'd probably be an album that just uh, broadcasted Morse code <laughs> nonstop. <laughs> um, I don't know. That's a hard question because <clears throat> I love music. I don't listen to a lot of music. I don't. Um... So there's not a go-to that you're just going to stick in and like, 11 months out of the year, you're listening to the same thing or 10 months out of the year. Like I'll put in Joshua tree and listen to it for two months. Right. And then take it out and listen to something else and then put it back in. I think if I was going to reach for a record that as a whole, that's a really hard question. Ones that come to mind would be Mark Cohn's first record. Um, or Neil Finn, Try Whistling This. I love that record. I love so much of his records. But I don't... Like When I listen to a record like that, I listen to it once. I'm like, okay, that was good for this year. <laughs> So maybe I'd just have that with me on the on the island and listen to it once a year. Yeah. And then you're spelling out SOS and seashells on the yeah. uh, on the shore. Yeah. yeah. The truth is I'd be on that island and I wouldn't be listening to music a whole lot. <laughs> well, there's the smoke monster you have to worry about too. That's true. Or maybe just an album of survival technique. Like this is like a book on, <laughs> on survival techniques and I just just play it over and over again. <clears throat> um I think that's it, dude. So your own, uh, unless you have something you just want to contribute out of the blue. I don't, I mean, I just generally start like, I don't don't know that I have anything worthy to contribute from the beginning. (laughs) So your stuff's uh, on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, everywhere else. It's on all that stuff. And if you can spell my last name, G-U-L-L-A-H-O-R-N. I don't think there are any other people making music with that last name because nobody was dumb enough to. <laughs> your uh, your website is com. Yes, and it's updated every week uh, back in 2016. And it hasn't been updated since then, but there's still some stuff on it. Um, <laughs> occasionally, I might put my shows on the website. <laughs> As you can see, I'm not the, the most business-minded person in the entire world. Self-promotion's not your game. Yeah. I, I had somebody email me the other day and said, hey, I saw on your website about booking shows and, you know, the the fee that you put on your website looks great and we'd love to have you out to the church. And I look at the fee and it's like less than half of what my fee is. 
It's like, oh, I should probably update that every once in a no while. No wonder it looks so good. Yeah. You got, the, like, you got the coupon code. I was like, in stores, you know, if you advertise something, you have to, you know, give them that price. I guess, sure, I'll go for that much yeah. money. But <laughs> I, throw I in some food, too. I don't update it as I should. <laughs> but there is some stuff on there. Um, and then social media, it's all just Andy Gellahorn. And that's a little bit more up to date. Although I don't post a lot about... Uh, maybe enough about my work as I do about my life. Now, you haven't written books. You're not like Andrew and some of those other folks. You no, I, I ain't smart. Okay. Uh, no, I don't. The, the idea of writing a book feels uh, very overwhelming to me. Mm-hmm. I might be able to do like an activity book. It's not that I'm not smart or that I can't read. I just, I, I think in three-minute songs. And yeah. It's hard to think past that yeah so you had a social media time span before social media that's one of the things that frustrates me about old music i I think about uh like some johnny cash and some merle haggard and all that all those songs are like two and a half minutes long because they were Mm -hmm. limited by the medium at the time right and i like really long songs i like you do oh yeah tell me a story in six or seven minutes as long as it's a good song i'm not you know, I'm not like what kind of like give me an example of, of one that you like that would be that long. A lot of Coldplay songs are long. Huh. Um there's a there's a live version of uh Chicago doing twenty five or six to four that's like back when they were Chicago Transit Authority. Huh. That's really cool. It's like six and a half minutes long. Um Dire Straits had some long songs. Mark Knopfler has some long songs. Any song that tells a story, I don't care how long it is. Uh, that's I really mean interesting. American Pie may be a little out there. Right. Especially since nobody really knows what it means. But if if there's what if it's long because it has like a three minute guitar solo? Alive is okay, but I wouldn't listen to it like over and over again. Because okay. I'm not a guitarist and I don't the technique and, you know, the coolness of it wouldn't really do anything. Well, I'm a guitar player and I don't care for it. <laughs> so in in concert, sure, if I'm watching the person play, yeah. Um, then that that's one thing because I can admire their their talent. But not to just crank up a song that has a like I don't know that I could be a huge Rush fan if Neil Peart has a 10 minute drum solo in every song right you know that would just it's just not not good but I, I do like long songs that are well written well performed um, I don't know anything about music but I do enjoy good music hmm. so I love I love stories in song but there's something about this is one of the reasons why I love Nashville over Austin there I always love the structure of country music mm. and the rules and, and the the limited uh, the limitations in writing. So when I hear songs, even a story song, if it's a really good story mm-hmm. and it goes over four minutes, five minutes, I, I can take it. But to me, the perfect song is telling that same story in three minutes, three and a half minutes. <laughs> There's something about the limitation. That it's, it's a challenge. I, I think it's just way harder to tell the story in that mm-hmm. amount of time. And I mean, there's some stories where you, you just can't do that. But I will always be, once three and a half minutes hits, just because I've been, that's what I studied under all the country mm-hmm. writers. Once that hits, I'm like, I'm, I'm done. I, I, I want to be done with the, yeah, with the arc of the song. Yeah. And I just think it's really challenging to to see how much arc you can get into three and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. A lot of people kind of look down on that and they're like, "Oh, Nashville, the you know music business it has to be three and a half minutes." What it you know takes away my artistic creativity, and it's like, "Oh, well, I feel sorry for you." In some of my younger <clears throat> younger believing years, I listened to Don Francisco a lot and some of Keith Green's stuff. Mm-hmm. Was Prodigal Son Suite was really long. Don Francisco, you know, Jesus Rising from the Dead takes a while. Um, so a lot of those narrative type songs were longer. Hmm. And I, I guess that molded some of it. Because yeah. certainly those songs from when I was a kid that my dad listened to on the AM radio were two and a half minutes long. Right. You know. <clears throat> There's so. a, I just, and it's not that, you know, one of them is better than the other. Yeah. I'll just say that when I hear a, a two and a half minute, three minute song like a, a four line verse, mm-hmm. maybe a four line chorus, another four line verse, another, the same chorus, and then a, then a two line bridge and a chorus, and it 
if it's that structure mm-hmm. and can move me and take me places in that amount of time, it just that's just magic to me. Yeah. It can also be a really crappy song. Yeah. And and you know, it's not the 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 structure that makes it a good song for sure. But when it happens in that, I I feel like I just appreciate it so much more. Yeah. Just because I know how hard it is. That's really hard. Oh, that's, yeah, that's great. I don't know how hard it is, but that's a great point. It's just, I, I in my experience, it's just way harder. Yeah. Which is why you find um, a lot of new songwriters, if you go doing songwriting workshops or something, mm-hmm. and somebody has four or five songs they've written, they want feedback on it. I usually buckle up because it's usually going to be a six minute long song. Oh, wow. And I'm not saying that's what the, the long, mm-hmm. some songs call for that. But a typical thing for a new songwriter is is having a hard time economizing their words, mm-hmm. saying in two lines what what they ended up saying in eight lines, or repeating themselves and saying, just kind of being redundant and not taking it forward. So in a sense, it's like a sermon. Yeah, it's, it's you know maybe maybe for me, you know, I grew up Catholic, and uh, I prefer a homily to a sermon. I'll just say that like. 15 minutes is I have so many friends that are pastors um, and when I think of you know like a typical Baptist church mm-hmm. where where it's like well I've got like 15 minutes of material but if I do 15 minutes then it's trouble next week because I'll be expecting to get out early so I'm going to fill it with you know 30 more minutes of something I'm going to have I've got 30 minutes of alliteration coming at you so yeah, that's right. Song wise, I prefer a homily to a yeah. sermon. I'll will take that any day. That's awesome. Well, my guest today on Uncommentary has been singer songwriter Andy Gullahorn. You can find him in all the places that we've mentioned. And Andy, thanks for being with me. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Uncommentary. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. When you get a chance, if you would rate and review uh, Uncommentary in your favorite podcatcher. Mostly iTunes, I guess, but uh, whichever one you use, whether it's Overcast or Podbean, if they have a rating system or a review system, if you'd take a few moments to do that, that'd be awesome. It takes about 10 seconds to uh, to rate and about three sentences to review. Um, doesn't, doesn't take a lot. So we're over 60 on ratings and almost a 30, I think, on reviews on iTunes. If we can get to 150, respectively, that'll be awesome. Uh, if you're interested in supporting Uncommentary, Financially, uh, you can do a one-time gift at paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. Uh, if you'd like to become a patron for as little as 2 bucks a month, swag level 3 bucks a month, you can do that at Patreon, patreon.com slash uncommentary. That's patreon.com slash uncommentary. Now, if you'd like to advertise, and I can always use advertisers, then email me, martyduran at yahoo.com, and I'll get you a rate sheet. You can follow me on Twitter at Marty Duran. Follow the podcast at Uncommentary Pod. And tell your friends and relatives and everyone you know to listen to Uncommentary. Till next episode, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary. Solideo Gloria.